Good morning. It's Friday, the 19th of January, and this is Govind Rajathiraj based in Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day the global markets pause could lead a recovery in Asia and India. Bets now on post election growth in loans and equities. Worldwide power generation from coal hits a new high in 2023. 250 million Indians came out of multidimensional poverty in nine years. But what is multidimensional poverty? The aviation industry focuses on big airplane orders, including fresh ones, as it tries to put the mayhem of last week behind. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Global markets pause. Will they lead a recovery? So before we come to India, let's look at what's happening elsewhere in the world because it's clearly playing an important role. Stocks in US futures climbed on Thursday as traders appear to have come to terms that interest rate cuts may be delayed beyond the first quarter with Europe specifically hinting at a mid-year move. In the US, the focus is now on Chipmakers who gained in U.S. pre-market trading after Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Co., the main supplier to Apple and NVIDIA, said it expects to return to solid growth this quarter, according to Bloomberg. Microchip technology, advanced micro devices and applied materials all added about 2%. Apple climbed 1.7%. NVIDIA also rose. In the United States, again, Boeing company gained after winning an order for 150 of its troubled 737 MAX jets from, guess who? Well, India's Akasa Airlines. And more on Akasa and the aviation sector, of course, shortly. Signs that European policymakers are converging around a June rate reduction calmed markets, along with indications that Chinese state funds are coming to the rescue of equities, said Bloomberg. Back home, the BAC Sensex declined about 314 points to end at 71,187, while the Nifty 50 ended at 21,462, down 110 points or 0.5%. Remember, yesterday, the Sensex was down over 1,600 points. But HDFC Bank, who continues to be the villain of the piece, fell another 3% after falling over 8% on Wednesday. There is a fair bit of post-mortem now going on about why HDFC bank stocks are falling like this, including whether the management did not communicate its results or its outlook well enough. Now, the worry is obviously because many institutional investors have a high exposure to HDFC bank, which in turn has a considerable weightage on the BSE Sensex. So if the HDFC bank stock falls, the whole market falls and vice versa. Moving on to the rupee, which moved in a tight range for most of Thursday as Asian currencies overall were stronger, closing at 83 rupees 12 paise against the US dollar, a very slightly higher than the previous session. So to get a sense on what's really driving Indian markets at this point and which way are the triggers flowing, I reached out to Gaurang Shah, Senior Vice President of Geojit Securities, and I began by asking him how he was viewing the mayhem, well, if you want to call it that, in the last three days. So I think it's a couple of things together, to be very honest. Domestic numbers, post-IT, I think the entire market was a bit and IT index was the one which led the entire uptick in the early days. Yesterday, we had a huge sell-side number from the FIs and the global news flow also kept the markets in a little bit of tight range. So it's both the global and the local news flow, which is kind of keeping the markets a little bit choppy, of course, when we started the day this morning after yesterday's huge correction, we did manage to pull back a little bit. But then those gains were given into 
then we managed to recover a little bit from the lows of the day. My sense is that at levels where we are, 21,400 and 72,200 approximately on the Nifty as well as Sensex, I think from here on, the downside looks extremely protected. And there was a lot of froth in the market as well, a lot of leverage push. But in a general sense, Gorang, you know, so there is sentiment which comes in from overseas and there is capital. So capital is to some extent or large extent now counterbalanced by domestic capital. How are you looking at this interplay? I think it's more local investors driven kind of a market. You're absolutely right. Despite of that selling yesterday of almost over 10,000 crores, if I'm not mistaken, from the FI side, domestic guys bought in a little bit over 4,000 crores yesterday. If the correction would have been a little bit more deeper, but I think it was thanks to the buying at lower level from both domestic institutions as well as retail investors. And surprisingly, you know, post the second quarter numbers in the last one week or 10 days, we had a whole host of upgrades coming through and all those were from the foreign brokerage houses. Even domestically, we believe that once, of course, we are in the early stages of the third quarter earnings. Our sense tells us that we might see a little bit larger number in terms of earning upgrade post Q3 numbers. But like I said, you know, we had rallied in a very short period of time. I think over the last fortnight, if you actually go to see or three weeks, there was a decent rally uptick. There was a lot of optimism that was there in the street, given the fact that a lot of leverage positions were there, especially in the FNO segment. And this situation led to the kind of correction that we saw. Yesterday and today's correction, if you go to see, is not even 4% from the top to the level where we are. So in a market where you have 72,000 plus Sensex and 22,000 plus Nifty, I think we have to get used to these kind of corrections in terms of percentage. In terms of points, it look might a little bit larger. But when you compare it with the base of the Sensex and Nifty, it might look smaller in percentage terms. Right. And you, you did say that, or at least your projection is that the downside from here is somewhat protected. And in any case, international markets have recovered. So presumably that's going to play going forward. Yeah. So, you know, these are the levels where we consolidated to for a great long period last year, if you actually go to see 21,200, 21,400. And we spent almost about a month, if my memory serves me right. When this was, I think, uh, second half of uh, 23, if I'm not mistaken. Somewhere between July and August, September. So I think this is a very strong base. To break this base, I think there's going to be a lot more selling that is required. But with the kind of buying also visible, I don't think it's going to be that easy to break those levels. So I think 21,300 should hold out. Last question, Gaurang. HDFC Bank has been a bit of a villain of the piece here on uh, both days. So my question is, What's really driving this? I mean, is it really, I mean, obviously it has to do with what the market expected in terms of deposit growth rate and so on. But is there something more to it that we are not able to see? So let me give a very honest disclosure. We have a buy call on HDFC Bank. Our target stands at 2000, despite of whatever mayhem that we have seen on the street, post the bank announced its numbers and my sense, and let me say this to be very honest, I think we all were gungo about the big merger that took place, HDFC Limited and HDFC Bank. And post-merger, I think the balance sheet stands very tall in terms of any kind of comparison or competition. And when you have those, this large merger, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is the third quarter earning that we are witnessing, but post-merger, I think this is the second 
what are earnings that we lost. Second quarter was the first one post module, module and uh, this third quarter is the second one post. So synergies do take time when you have such large entities coming into one. If I look at the last five year, 10 year, maybe more history of HDFC Bank, then I don't see any reason why one quarter earnings should lead to so much of negativity on the street. I think it was more of bear hammering rather than anything else. Short side sellers just pounced onto it. And I think the result is in front of us. I think the stock did manage to recover a little bit today. But I would go on record on your channel. That I think it's a screaming buy at these levels if you are a long-term investor. And that's a nice note to end on. Gaurang, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. See you. Back to global markets. Asia's new favorite stock market is, well, hold on. In a fresh sign of shifting capital flows and to some extent a demonstration of how quickly market fortunes can change, Japan's equities are rapidly gaining on their losses to Chinese stocks. The gap between the market capitalization of mainland China stocks and Japanese shares has now shrunk to about $2.5 trillion, the least since July 2020, according to data from Bloomberg. The last time Japan commanded a higher value than China was in early 2019, which makes it almost five years. Now, this, of course, is a good reminder that Japan was a bigger stock market not so long ago and how global investors are weighing options at this point, including in Asia, which obviously affects India. While investors are buying Japan, since we talked about India, they are dumping Chinese stocks with China's CSI 300 index now at its lowest level since January 2019. Meanwhile, as we mentioned a few days ago as well, Japan's indices, the Nikkei 225 and Topics gauges are at their highest levels in 34 years this week. Tokyo Stock Exchange is Asia's biggest equity market now and Japanese indices have been the world's best performing, at least the major ones, in the last 12 months, which with each gaining more than 25% according to Bloomberg. The bets now are on post-poll spending and investing. After a series of bullish reports, each one more than the other in the last six months, investment bankers are now focusing on post-poll gains or elections and after. India may see accelerated foreign inflows into its $4.4 trillion stock market once the national elections are over, according to a Goldman Sachs group strategist reported the business standard. There are some people who are still hesitant ahead of the elections and once the election is behind us, you could probably see many coming to the market, Asia-Pacific equity strategist at Goldman said in an interview in Singapore. He also said that lofty stock valuations are another off-sighted reason for staying away, but earnings growth could and should address that. It is, of course, interesting to note that brokerages stocked up the market in the last few months of 2023 on the very premise that the BJP would return to power in 2024. So if that was the premise, then why wait for the elections could be a logical question. Well, presumably because valuations are high and it's tough to sell a story without touching upon whether you could actually make money if you bought stocks rich. Of course, Goldman has an answer for that. According to them, they are overweight the market on expectations of about 15% earnings growth compounded annually this year and the next. And that in turn should keep a lid on valuation. So that was equities. Now let's look at debt and loans, which are expected to also grow after elections as companies increase capital expenditure, according to Bank of America. Bank of America's India head of corporate banking told Bloomberg TV on Thursday that they anticipated a significant pickup in credit expansion plans of corporate India post-elections. Loan growth was about 20% in the year through December, 
which was the highest in more than a decade, according to data compiled by Bloomberg. But the expansion was, however, led by retail loans, which in itself has been a matter of anticipatory concern by the Reserve Bank of India, as well as more recently by India's largest bank, the State Bank of India. The bank I'm view is that private capex, which is limited to sectors like telecom, infrastructure and renewables right now, will become more broad-based post-May. Electricity generation from coal is rising. For all the efforts to cut back on fossil fuels, an energy-hungry world is still leaning heavily on it. And in our energy segment, supported by India Energy Week, worldwide electricity generation from coal hit record highs in 2023, while thermal coal exports surpassed 1 billion metric tons for the first time, according to Reuters. Coal-fired electricity generation was 8,295 terawatt hours through October, up very marginally, but up nevertheless from the same period in 2022 and the highest on record, according to environmental think tank Ember. Emissions from coal-fired electricity generation also hit new highs through October 2023, topping about 7.8 billion tonnes of carbon dioxide and equivalent gases Again, about 66 million tons more than the same period in 2022. So as you can see, not only is the generation rising, but so are the emissions. The footprint now of coal mining and exports and its use in power generation is overwhelmingly concentrated in Asia, as many other parts of the world, including Europe and North America, have adopted measures to phase down the use of coal for power, said Reuters. India was the second biggest importer, 172 million tons of coal, followed by Japan, 109 million tons. South Korea, 80 million tons, and so on. China, of course, was the top thermal coal buyer, taking delivery of a record 325 million tons, which was, by the way, 109 million tons more than 2022, which I'm assuming was down because of post-COVID slowdown in industrial production. Sticking to energy and oil, most of the news around oil is to do with the fate of ships passing through the Red Sea, which is not very good right now because tensions are still high. And the United States most recently has fired a fresh set of missiles into Houthi rebel sites in Yemen. Brent crude is holding around $77 a barrel steady given the general turmoil and also reflecting both weak demand and falling selling prices by the OPEC countries or the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. The energy segment on the core report was supported by India Energy Week. More details on www.indiaenergyweek.com. The event happens next month. Multidimensional poverty in India is falling. The share of India's population living in multidimensional poverty is estimated to have fallen to about 11% in 22-23 from about 29% in 2013-14, according to a discussion paper released by Niti Aayog on Monday. In absolute numbers, Niti Aayog estimates that some 248 million people escaped multidimensional poverty in the last nine years, obviously referring to the current tenure of the government or the tenure of the current government. India's definition of multidimensional poverty is measured using 12 indicators, including nutrition, child and adolescent mortality, maternal health, years of schooling, school attendance, drinking water, electricity, housing and assets. It tries to measure poverty in a more holistic manner as opposed to solely relying on income levels to assess deprivation. 
States like Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, Madhya Pradesh and Rajasthan apparently recorded the sharpest decline in the number of people classified as poor on that multi-dimensional poverty index or MPI the Indian Express reported. The discussion paper, yes, it's a discussion paper, also notes the severity of deprivation declined at a slightly lower rate between 2015-16 and 2019-21 compared to 2005-6 and 13-14. To understand what multidimensional poverty means and how we should be interpreting it compared to traditional levels of assessing poverty, I reached out to Ashok K. Bhattacharya, editorial director at Business Standard Newspaper, and I began by asking him how he understood the definition of multidimensional poverty. This is a relatively new concept. The traditional concept of measuring poverty was based on income. But as you would know, measuring income has natural problems of how do you measure income. So you now normally go in for consumption expenditure of people. Now, consumption expenditure or income estimation in a developing society. All these estimates are fraught with a lot of problems and maybe inaccuracies. So this is a new concept which has been coined by the World Bank, which measures kind of simultaneous deprivations across three dimensions. They are health, education, and standard of living. These standards are represented by 12 goals, which are sustainable development goals. And Niti Aayog is measuring that. And we are getting a new estimate, which globally also is, is done particularly by the World Bank. What stands out in this when you compare it to income? I mean, as in, are we then happy with this new way of looking at poverty? It depends on uh, uh, what measure you want to attach more importance to. If you go in by the income level to measure poverty, you do see reduction of poverty level in India. And for example, if you look at on the income level poverty in India, we by 2021, going by the World Bank estimate, is around 12%. Now, going by the multidimensional poverty index, you see that the headcount ratio for the multidimensionally poor people is around 15% for broadly the same year, that is 2019 to 2021. So I see that there are problems in measuring multidimensional poverty because these estimates are based on what is called the National Family Health Survey rounds and not on the consumption expenditure surveys. So purists will obviously find faults in, in this estimate because it's a more or less like an extrapolation and you are measuring the growth and availability in services and those sustainable development, health, education parameters as if they continue to grow at the same level in the last few years. So there is a problem with regard to the manner in which you measure them for lack of the latest data on consumption expenditure. So you're essentially extrapolating National Family Health Survey data to the current level. As I said, the purists will find faults in this estimate, but it does give you a broad indication of where we are moving as far as reaching sustainable development goals are concerned. That's useful. So you're saying that if you were to look at what we've achieved in a larger sense, then obviously this metric works. But if you were to look at income, pure income, which is what I'm assuming matters to 
people, particularly poor people, because that is what they buy things with or they're able to support themselves. We've not gained as much. And that is a major problem. And that's because of lack of data. We have not had any recent consumption expenditure survey after, if I'm not mistaken, in the, the early 2011 or 2012. So the last survey, which was in 27, 2018, was available, but it was rejected. So for, in the absence of a consumption expenditure survey, we have to rely on the National Family Health Survey, which is giving you data on health, education, etc., trying to assume and trying to estimate that what could be the incidence of poverty in a country. If you were to sort of triangulate now, and if you were to look at other factors, including, let's say, the government's spending on the National Rural Employment Guarantee Program or food grain distribution and so on, where would you say we really stand today? I think going by the state-level data that this Niti Aayog survey gives you, I think the states which are traditionally poor, like Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, Madhya Pradesh, and even Rajasthan, uh, and if you look at that data, you do see the sharpest reduction in the multidimensional poverty index in these states. And that has happened in the last 10 years or so. So I would imagine these numbers do tell us more or less correctly about the impact these welfare schemes have had on the multidimensional poverty index. Because remember that all the indicators that the MPI tracks are impacted directly by the various welfare schemes that the government has introduced in the last five or nine years. In your own understanding now, what would you feel is an indicator that we should be looking at as a country when it comes to really looking at how many people are poor and disadvantaged and therefore we should be also aligning policy towards? As you also pointed out, the income estimate is important and for that we first need the policy fix should be to get the consumption expenditure survey out as soon as possible. Number two would be get the census back and census data should be out in and exercise should begin at the earliest. And number three, I would say, is that while health, education and standard of living indicators are important, measuring income data is also important and therefore the exercise has to be multidimensional to measure whether we are doing well in reducing poverty in India. AKB, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. India is the third largest buyer of aeroplanes. India is now the third largest buyer of aircraft or aeroplanes after the United States and China, India's civil aviation minister said on Thursday while inaugurating the Wings India event, an aviation industry gathering and air show in Hyderabad. It is, of course, interesting that the announcements of fresh capacity, and I will come to more of that in a moment, come in the backdrop of a systemic failure in tackling pressure points, including what we saw this week thanks to fog-induced delays and utter mayhem in the managing of it. The cascading delays exposed the lack of training and soft skills by the airlines in managing the mounting crisis and also the coordination between agencies. The ministers shared the government's aviation industry plans, which are aiming for 200 airports in six years' time and 300 million passengers in all. India's airlines have some 1,500 aircraft orders pending now, most of them announced last year with Indigo and Air India constituting the bulk. 
But in latest news, in Hyderabad again, Akasa Air, the newest airline in India, announced on Thursday it's ordered 150 Boeing 737 MAX narrow-body planes as it also looks at international routes. Reuters reported that this is the first major order announcement for Boeing's troubled MAX jetliner program since a mid-air cabin panel blowout in the United States early this month on Alaska Air. Akasa's order for 737 MAX 10 and MAX 8 200 does not include the MAX 9 version, many of which have been grounded over the Alaska Airlines cabin panel blowout incident. Since it started flying in 2022, Akasa has now got a market share of 4%, Indigo has a share of about 60%, and all the Tata Group airlines, which includes Air India, Vistara, and AirAsia, are at about 26%. Akasa currently flies only domestically with about 24 aircraft. Speaking of aircraft and fleets, Indigo Airlines CEO Peter Elber said on Jan 18th, that's Thursday, that the airline will improve its on-time performance by next week, returning to earlier standards after it clocked the worst ever on-time performance earlier this week, thanks to dense fog and fog-induced delays, according to a report in Money Control. The airline is now trying to reach an 80% plus OTP soon, he said, at a Wings India or at the Wings India 2024 event. Flight cancellations and delays on Jan 14th caused a cascading effect on our OTP, the CEO of Indigo said, adding that the airline needs to expand its digital network to make sure its frontline staff is aware of correct information to pass on to customers. Perhaps this was not the forum, but as aviation experts like Jitendra Bhargav have pointed out, it is indeed strange that none of the airline's CEOs, or perhaps there's no precedent, apologized to their passengers for the inconveniences caused in the last few days, or perhaps they're waiting for the week to get over, or at least one hopes so. A cabin attendant becomes president. Sticking to airlines, albeit with a slightly different twist. Japan Airlines has named its first female president on Wednesday. And interestingly, Mitsuko Totori is a former cabin attendant who joined the airline in 1985 and rose through the ranks to senior management. Japanese companies in general are facing increasing pressure to boost gender diversity and tackle a gender pay gap that is the worst amongst the G7 nations and almost double the average of the OECD grouping of advanced economies, according to Reuters. Totori told a news conference that there are female employees out there who are struggling with their career steps or going through big life events, and she hoped that her appointment as president would encourage them or give them the courage to take the next step. That's it for me for today. Have a great day ahead and see you next week. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>